Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. The Gist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code THEGIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, January 12th, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I love the Pew Research Center. I thought it had a bad name at first, you know, noisome, malodorous. But now I take it to mean pew, 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 like shooting down your preconceptions through polling. The latest survey from Pew shows that rich people think the poor have it easy. So here's the statement that Americans were asked to agree or disagree with. And most Americans, Americans in general, disagree with the following statement. The poor have it easy because they can get government benefits without having to do anything in return. The rents are too damn low. But at the top echelon and right below that, a majority, 54% of the top quintile, say that, yes, the poor do have it easy. Now, This gets me to thinking. I think the number one thing that we can do to help our country is to make rich people nicer. The nicer the rich are, the better the country is. I mean, look at homosexuality, right? Almost every economic quintile agrees, but at the very top, the richest are the most pro-homosexuality, the most pro-gay. Hey, guess what? The country is turning pro-gay, which is a good thing. And look at immigration. At the very top, The richest people are pro-immigration. At the very bottom, people are more likely to be anti-immigration. Now, I suppose this is because to the rich, an immigrant means a servant, and to the poor, an immigrant is a job displacer. But never mind, it's a kind thing. So the kinder we can get our rich people to be, the better America will be, right? There was a time when the rich all came from exclusive boarding schools and were in a different class, and they were the robber barons, and things were terrible then in America. But as things got better, and better. The rich got nicer and nicer. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I mean, Bloomberg, really rich guy, really hell of a nice guy. I mean, he did a lot to combat cancer. But then you have other rich people like Sheldon Adelson or the Koch brothers, not such nice guys. They make America not such a great place to be. So this is what I'm saying to you. If you're within the sound of my voice and you can do so, hug a rich guy. Tell the rich guy that they are loved. It will be better for all of us. On the show today, I, in the spiel, will tackle the question of the teeming masses of Buddhist extremists who are bent on murdering civilians. Okay, they don't exist as an actual real-life phenomenon, but they're a useful argument. And we do the numbers, or at least we talk about numbers. Plus, it's going to be a They Might Be Giants dial-a-song debut Monday. But first... The more we learn about the terror attacks in France, the more scared we as Americans are told to be. But does this present an accurate picture of the actual risks?
So as we struggle to learn and to find out what happened in the attacks on Charlie Hebdo in the manhunt for the, now we think, three assailants, two brothers working together, the Kulachis, and then Amade Kulabali, we hear from American officials who tell us to be afraid, be very afraid. On CBS's Face the Nation, the Attorney General Eric Holder says that worries about terrorism keep him up at night. The possibility of such attacks um, exists in the United States. It is something that we worry about all the time. It is something that we meet about um, all the time. It's something that frankly keeps me up um, at night, worrying about um, the lone wolf or a, a, a group of people, a very small group of people who decide to get arms uh, on their own and do what we saw uh, in France uh, this week. A message has been sent out that ISIS has called on its followers to, quote, rise up and kill intelligence officers, police officers, soldiers and civilians in the U.S., Australia, Canada and France. Well, joining me now to talk about what we know or what we think we know is Colin Clark, an associate political scientist at the RAND Corporation. He focuses on counterinsurgency and terrorism and counterterrorism. Hello, Colin. Hello. Thanks for having me. One of the scariest things that we're hearing now, but that we also heard after 9-11, that we often hear after a terrorist attack or a thwarted attack, the shoe bomber, the underwear bomber, the Times Square bomber, is sleeper cells. Not that we should ever be blasé, but how real is the possibility of American-based sleeper cells? The thing is, we don't really know, right? Because the the essence of these sleeper cells is that they're asleep until they actually attack. Um, if we knew about them or had any idea that that these uh, any cells uh, were a threat, they'd be moved on and, and moved on quickly. It is something. It's 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 obviously a threat, you know. And I think the the threat could be far more dire uh, in a place like France than in the United States. Well, I want to ask about the comparison from France to the United States, a Western country. The similarities are there. And yet the French Muslim population is 10 percent. And also the French economic situation is so much worse. And I know there's been a lot of scholarship that questions, I think, the age old idea that terrorism and poverty go hand in hand. Sure. But doesn't hopelessness that might be set a uh, a French Muslim who lives in a community where he doesn't see any of his peers employed. Isn't that a different set of circumstance than the United States? Might not that be a key difference in terms of motivating someone towards terrorist acts? Yeah, I think so. I mean, clearly there's a lot of resentment in France um, amongst the Muslim community, which hasn't been integrated into French society, as well as Muslims in the United States. You know, I think the situation is especially acute in, in what are known as the Banlus, uh the disadvantaged suburbs that, that ring Paris and other large French cities. Uh, these are areas populated mostly by Muslims and people with uh, Arab or sub-Saharan African family roots. Uh, in 2005 and 2007, we saw violent riots break out, uh, missed rising frustrations over social and economic inequality. Coupled with that, you have these individuals that, because there's such a, a lack of or a perceived lack of uh, economic opportunity, they, they turn to crime, uh, which which ultimately leads to to jail. Um, and as we've seen in many cases, including this most recent case in France, prison has become uh, sort of a petri dish for radicalization. Uh, this is the place where these individuals come into contact. They grow their network, and in many cases, harden in their beliefs, both in their commitment to this more virulent stream of jihadism, uh, but also in opposition to the West, and in, in this particular instance, opposition to France and French values. 
Yeah, and that isn't going on in the United States. Or can we say it's not going on to such a degree? Or can we just simply say radicalization within the prisons of the United States is just not a thing we're seeing here? It's something to keep an eye on, certainly. Um, the, the United States has issues with, uh, with less with terrorism in, in prison and more with gangs, as you've seen with um, groups like MS-13, uh, the Mexican Mafia, uh, but, but less so, so far at least, uh, with, with jihadist groups. Over the weekend, all over the news, I heard different officials saying that the threat matrix is more severe. It's a scarier time now than any time since 9-11. And yet, if you check your history, when was ever the time we said, oh, it's much less scary now? We seem to always say that. And of course, when a terrorist attack just happens, how could anyone doubt it? But can you put that in context for us about is it the scariest time since 9-11 or is it always the scariest time since 9-11? Well, you know, for me, I'm someone that I've been studying terrorism for a long time, and so I'm always concerned. I'm always thinking about this every day. As you'll note in the recent ISIS call to attack countries, the four countries named were the U.S., France, Australia, and Canada. Well, we've seen attacks in France, Australia, and Canada. We haven't seen one recently in the United States. Um, And so that's something that's certainly uh, keeping law enforcement intelligence intelligence authorities on guard. Well, what about the wisdom or prudence of... um of repeating that claim on the one hand yeah we should all be concerned on the other hand aren't we doing isis's pr for them by saying that isis is putting a call out to anyone who might be motivated to attack to pick up a gun or drive a car and take out and and carry out some attacks i'm not sure i agree with that totally um it's it's better to acknowledge it than than to totally disregard this and say that, that the threat isn't there so i think acknowledging it makes people more vigilant and it increases the likelihood that if something looks awry, something doesn't look quite right, citizens in the United States or elsewhere are more likely to, to contact law enforcement authorities. Al Alawaki, an American Insight magazine, which is their propaganda arm uh, put out by Americans. How integrated into ISIS are Americans? How likely is it that an American will hear that call and say, yeah, I'm an adherent of ISIS? Um, well, we know that uh, there are Americans, in fact, fighting for ISIS. What this whole attack in, in Paris really raises to me is the issue of al-Qaeda, which has kind of been forgotten with all the media sensationalism and hype over uh, ISIS from the summer to the present. Um, there's still al-Qaeda, core al-Qaeda in, in Pakistan. There's al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, which it seems the the two brothers were connected to. Mm-hmm. Um, there's still al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. And then there's also more dangerous groups uh, within Syria, both the Khorasan group and Jabhat al-Nusra, whose stated objectives are to strike out against the West. So if nothing else, this, this attack in Paris reminds us that it's not all about ISIS. There are other groups out there that, you know, it's their, their stated goal to attack the West. And even though ISIS and al-Qaeda have had a very public falling out over both ideology and long-term strategy, at least the, the coordination of people acting in their name uh, should, should keep us on guard. Dr. Colin Clark is an associate political scientist at the RAND Corporation, where he focuses on national and international security issues and challenges. Thank you, Colin. Thanks again for having me. One great resolution you can make for the new year is to maximize every minute. 
and every dollar for your small business. It's easy to do that with Stamps.com. Like the post office, you might be wasting time going to the post office. It is always odd that when I start talking about Stamps.com and I have to pick on one institution, I pick on the post office. So I'm not going to do that now. I'm going to give you a grab bag of institutions that might be taking your time. All right, 7-Eleven, what if there's a long line? Hate that. But I don't have a website to remedy that. All right, you know what the dairy barn is in Long Island? It's a drive through place where you could get milk and then you say to the guy, yeah, add a 20 and you get 20. But if there's a long line, that stinks too. Again, I got nothing to remedy that. Here's what I do have. I have stamps.com. It's a better way to get you postage. You use your computer, you use your printer, which you already have. And then the mailman comes, picks up your postage. Everything you could do at the post office, you could do right from your desk, except stand there for no reason. We at the gist are offering you a no risk trial. It's a $110 bonus offer. You get a free digital scale and up to $55 free postage. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com, immediately click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in the gist. That's stamps.com and enter the gist. Seven reasons why hedgehogs are better than kumquats. 13 new uses for clothespins. 11 ways to know your man is stepping out. You know what bonds those ridiculous headlines together? Well, it's the numbers, 7, 13, 11. Headline writers love the odd numbers. Here are five reasons why. I, too, am fascinated with numbers, specifically the number 11. It's a number that really makes no sense when you think about it. Luckily, a pair of women are trying to make sense of all things numerical. They've written a book. So joining me now are the authors of Numericon. They're the editors of Plus Magazine, which publishes articles from the world's top mathematicians and science writers on topics like art, medicine, cosmology, and sport. They are Marianne Freiberger and Rachel Thomas. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. So during this conversation, if I say math, you promise to hear it as maths, okay? Yeah, we promise. Is it all right if we say maths? It's fine. But I've already, I've already said sport instead of sports, so I think we're on the same or exactly different pages, yes. Okay. <laughs> so I want to ask you first, before we get to Numericon, tell me about Plus Magazine. It strikes me as it's a little different from an art magazine. You don't have to be that much of an expert to love an art magazine, but if you are an expert, you could get out of it. You get a lot out of an art magazine. But with math, aren't there different levels of expertise required to appreciate different levels of articles about math, essentially? Obviously, there's different levels of mathematics available to be read. And I guess what we try and do at PLUS is to translate some of the more sophisticated mathematics that's out there to a level that we hope is is accessible to anyone who's interested. You have to be interested to be reading PLUS because PLUS is about mathematics. But we try and cover a whole sort of range of topics, as you said, art, sport, maths behind politics, but also like current maths research, current research from other areas of science. And we try and write about all of those things in a way that's interesting and also accessible to people, you know, with high school mathematics, um, but, you know, with an interest in, in learning about those things. So your book, Numericon, the chapters are chapters in order, chapter zero, chapter one, chapter square root of two, chapter five, chapter two, chapter epsilon, and then they start going a little more in order, which I enjoyed. So many different nuggets. Let's take one, the McNugget. Explain to me what a McNugget number is and why it's important. Well, um, if you remember how you buy those chicken nuggets, they usually come in boxes of a certain quantity. 
Um, I'm not sure. I think originally it was six, nine, and twelve. Twenty, maybe, I think. I yeah, six, nine, and six, nine, and twenty. Oh, I know. Six, and nine, I can and tell 20. you which sauces are available too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then the question is, um, like, if if I give you a particular number of chicken nuggets that I would like to eat, can you make that number by buying a certain number of boxes? Right. So, for example, if I say to you, I would like to eat. Uh, what did we have? Six, nine, and twenty. If I would like to eat fifteen, you can buy a box of six, and you can buy a box of nine, and that's my fifteen. Right. Okay. And then there are some numbers that you cannot make out of those boxes. So, for example, you wouldn't be able to make eleven because you just can't. There's no way of doing it. But as your numbers get bigger, so as if as the numbers that I would like to eat get bigger, at some point you can definitely make that number up out of the boxes that you have available. So if I tell you I would like to eat 365, there is a combination, which I don't know off in my head right now, but there will be a combination of boxes that you can buy so I can eat my 365 nuggets. Now, a McNugget number is the biggest number that you cannot make out of the boxes that you have. And I know what that number is because that's what your headline number was, your chapter heading. It's 43, yeah. Exactly, it's 43. And it might sound like a bit of a silly problem, but these kind of problems come up quite a lot because similar things happen, for example, when you try to make change with a given number of um, denominations of coins and so on. So there are practical problems where these kind of things are important. And I do this, a version of this with my sons who are six and seven about football, American football scoring. You have to take out the safety, but a field goal is worth three, a touchdown is worth six, and a Mm -hmm. touchdown with an extra point is worth seven. So I will say, all right, how do you get to 18? How do you get to this number? And they'll try to think of different ways to get there. Yeah. Yes. Now, I am fascinated with the number 11. It is a unique number. It is not a teen, but it is not a single digit. Do you have any thoughts on 11? One of the things that is quite interesting about the number 11 is that there's a really good trick for figuring out if any number you think of, any whole number you think of, to check if it's divisible by 11. So do you want to give me a whole number and I'll see if I can do it? 8,452. 8,452. Okay, so the trick is you start with the leftmost digit, you add that digit, subtract the next, add the digit, subtract the next, add the digit, and you keep going along until you run out. So we start with 8, minus 4, plus 5, minus 2, uh, which is 9, which is 7. So the answer of adding and subtracting alternate digits to that is 7. So that means it's not divisible by 11. I'm just going to check it with my calculator. Oh, no, calculators. Yeah, so it's not divisible by 11 because the adding and subtracting alternate digits doesn't give you a number that's divisible by 11. But if you think of any multiple of 11, like 22, 121, or even bigger numbers, if you tried that trick of adding the first digit, subtracting the next digit, adding the next digit, subtracting the next digit, if the answer that you get as a result of doing that is divisible by 11, then the whole number you started with is divisible by 11. And Be- so that's in like a neat trick. Well, well that- won't the answer, it, let's say the answer you get is some huge number, can't you reduce that answer till it eventually, or can you reduce exactly, that answer till it eventually becomes exactly. zero? Exactly. So if adding and subtracting the digits gives you still a huge number, that's divisible by, if it's, the question is, is that number divisible by 11? So you can keep repeating your trick. And there's similar tricks that we have for figuring out. I mean, you, you can easily tell, can't you, if, if a number is divisible by two because it's even. Yes. Or if a number is a multiple of five or of ten. And there's actually, you know, other neat tricks to do with if it's divisible by three or seven, numbers like that. And what's kind of nice about this is it's actually really um, 
important in mathematics to be able to figure out the factors of a number, so what numbers multiply together to give you a number. And, uh, and particularly, mathematicians are really interested to know whether a number is prime, so if it has no other factors apart from one in itself. I was fascinated by 11. And by the way, that's an awesome trick, and I love it. <laughs> but uh, researchers are now pointing to 11 as expressed in English, this idea of 11 as harming students, especially when compared with Chinese or Korean, because, you know, in Chinese, as I understand it, there are only nine words for numbers, and every number is just a combination of those. So 10 and 11 make more sense intuitively. 11 can be a problem for English speakers. It's like, and 12 as well, I suppose. Because, um, I mean, that once you get above 20, then it's all, it's mostly the similar way, 21, 22. So you've, it's really clear you're basically verbally expressing the digits that you'd write down, aren't you? I mean, I think kids pretty early on, they're used to absorbing a whole lot of weird information. And particularly if they're going to learn to spell in English, then they're going to have to deal with a whole lot of crazy rules. So I don't think understanding 11 and 12 is beyond them. But I do understand that that initial, you know, construction of numbers possibly seems a bit strange. I think uh, the the teen numbering system is odd, too, because it's backwards, right? Mm. Four teen, you're saying the four first. And they say that gives English speakers a little bit of a problem, too. But at least it's in, internally logical. And 12, you know, it, it has its roots in the two, the two, one. But 11 just is made-up thing. I'm, I'm a little upset about 11, but I think you've helped me a bit. <laughs> What would you call it? No, I'd call it one and one. One, one and one. one. I'd call it one one. Marianne Freiberger and Rachel Thomas are the authors of Numericon. It is a book of 327 pages. Three minus two is one plus seven is eight, therefore not divisible by 11. <laughs> Thank you so much, Marianne and Rachel. Thank you, Mike. You and I will be together when we shed our... And now the spiel. Accurate, yet useless examples. The threat to the U.S. from Muslim terrorists has been exaggerated. So I was told on Twitter. There was a link to a study from a few years ago headlined, Non-Muslims carried out more than 90% of all terrorist attacks on U.S. soil. I paused. So you're saying, as a corrective to the notion that terrorism comes disproportionately from Muslims. Your defense is that this population, which is one, maybe 2% of the overall population, is responsible for about 10% of the terrorist attacks. That's your defense. All right, so I pointed this out on Twitter, and the person who originally tweeted it told me this. Extremist, violent Christians, Jews, and Buddhists are a minority too. Our energy might be better spent studying extremism at large. Yeah, because I'm really into excusing extremist Buddhists. Come on. Now, here's what's going to happen in this spiel. For the next couple of sentences, I'm going to engage in this point, and I'm going to rebut this point. I'm going to do so brilliantly, I hope. But that's not what I want you to take out of this discussion. I am not really looking to make a point. Or I should say, I'm not looking to make just one point. What I'm looking to do is usefully rebut similar points, points that one day might deal with terrorists, the next day NASCAR, the next day high school dropout rates. I'm calling for a cliche, and we're going to get there, but first I do have to walk us through there by dealing with the particular argument at hand. So again, on Twitter, I was told that extremist, violent Christians, Jews, and Buddhists are a minority too, so our energy might be better spent studying extremism at large. 
sucked in, I pointed out that there are no Buddhist equivalents of Anwar al-Awlaki or Insight Magazine. And then I was told, yeah, but Buddhists kill people too. And I was sent a link about an article about murderous Buddhists in Burma and Sri Lanka. And the article pointed out that the Sri Lankan Buddhists actually have killed no one. Hey, can I sign up for that option? I want those extremists. Can I get the Buddhist extremists in my country? Anyway, I was also told that there are Christian extremists. And this reminded me of what Nick Kristoff in the New York Times was saying. He wrote an article titled, Is Islam to Blame for the Shooting at Charlie Hebdo in Paris? Shockingly, given that the headline was composed right out of the child's treasury of leading questions. Shockingly, Christoph decided, no, Islam wasn't to blame. And he buttressed that using this point. The average Christian had nothing to apologize for when Christian fanatics in the former Yugoslavia engaged in genocide against Muslims. (sighs) Yeah, I guess we could also say the vast majority of sneezes that are emitted in the world don't result in anyone else catching a cold. Therefore, are sneezes to blame for sickness? No. Is your cat going to give you that craziness microbe? No. Cats are a peace-loving creature, and the vast majority do not have brain-altering parasites in their feces. So what about the ones that do? I mean, is asking that question kind of felinist? See, I don't want to take the con side of the question, is Islam to blame for the Charlie Hebdo shooting, right? I'm not going to say, yeah, it's Islam's to blame. My point's a little more nuanced. So I'm going to insist that the question be nuanced too. Is Islam, including the misappropriation or misdirection thereof, in any way a contributing factor in some terrorist incidents, sometimes, somewhere, ever? I think we have to do it. Yes, at this point, cue it. Cue the cavalcade of caveats. Okay. I do not want to associate myself with the remarks of Rupert Murdoch. I do not want to associate myself with the remarks of Fox News. I do not think that, I don't know, let's say 90%, 90-something percent of Muslims the world over are terrorists or terrorist sympathizers even. I don't think that 99-point-some percent of American Muslims are anything other than horrified by terrorism, right? It's my cavalcade of caveats. You know, but if there are three million of any group and one out of a thousand wants to harm the rest of us, that means that there are a few thousand people who want to harm us and I'd rather not be harmed. So, more caveat, more caveats. Don't punish the innocent collectively. Don't spy without warrants. Don't infiltrate mosques just because they're mosques. You know, because the problem with Muslim extremists isn't that they're Muslim. But it is also false to say that their identification with this religion, okay, the twisted, stupid version of this religion, doesn't motivate them. Most of the Muslim extremists we know about have also been brown-haired extremists, but it's not useful to call them brown-haired extremists or ten-fingered extremists because those traits aren't motivating their extremism. Anyway, you can end the cavalcade music now. I think, yes, I think there is something to the ideology. The twisted, misappropriated, incorrect, a Quranic 
maybe, is that a word, version of the ideology that maybe somehow, in some small way, has something to do with some jihads. And I only mention this because the jihadis say it explicitly over and over again. So yeah, maybe it has something to do with terrorism. But it doesn't matter. That's my one point rebutted. That's what I think about that argument. But here's what I want to do globally. I need a cliche. I really need a cliche. I like, say, let's take one cliche. Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. I love don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Like the ice water challenge, you know, it raised money, but more could have been raised if instead of dumping water, we went out and educated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. It's very useful. I think about that like five times a week. All right. uh, How about this one? Data is not the plural of anecdote. Ooh, that's a good one, right? You can say it about a lot of things and it helps organize your thoughts. But there's no equivalent to that kind of argument I was just dealing with there. Like when you talk about how there are some Buddhist extremists and some Christian extremists and some Jewish extremists, like all that stuff is beside the point, right? I'll talk about NASCAR. I mentioned NASCAR. Dale Earnhardt died in a NASCAR wreck. And right afterwards, a lot of people in NASCAR were defending that he was driving without the best safety equipment. And he was saying things like, look, the world can never be perfectly safe. And they were saying, but come on, people die in other sports. And they were saying, you know, the safety system isn't foolproof. But what we did is we took those arguments and we said, they're not lies. They're just not important enough to counter the main argument. And then we implemented these safety devices in NASCAR, and NASCAR has been a lot safer, right? But there was no one phrase, no catch-all to categorize all of those other arguments as beside the point or true as far as they go, but not quite getting there. So here are some cliches that come close to what I'm talking about, the idea of false equivalency, but it's not exactly false equivalency. Or the exception that proves the rule, that's not exactly what I'm talking about either. I'm talking about the presence of small, less relevant counter-arguments that don't sufficiently dispute the main point. Like maybe we could say, you know, even the Mona Lisa had a few bad brushstrokes. Or don't let a few bad oysters put you off seafood, although maybe you should. Or five strands of hair don't mean you're not bald. Anyway, can you help me out? Can you come up with a good cliche? Maybe there's one that exists and I don't know it or I'm not thinking of it. Anyway, the suggestions, they're already getting going on Facebook. Please make some more suggestions. I want you to be free. I want you to be creative. But remember, measure twice, but cut the baby in half once with the bathwater. That's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi thinks the key to American happiness is bucking up the spirits of the knife-sharpening population and challenging them to come up with snappy jingles in their trucks. Just intern Claire Tennisgetter believes that if Americans of Finnish extraction were to be comforted, we'd all be better in the end. The challenge is where to start with the Finnish. Joel Meyer is managing producer of Slate Podcasts. He marks his territory through urinating, defecating, and by scratching, rubbing, and biting trees. His challenge is when to determine if all this scratching and rubbing is less marking territory and more a cry for help. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcast, has issued a challenge to Elon Musk to keep his rockets in one piece. You can listen to us on iTunes, where you can subscribe and also leave a review. Please do leave a review. We are available through the app Yo. If you download that app and sign up for podcasts, we'll let you know when the show is posted. Go to slate.com slash gist email to sign up for our email. Go to facebook.com slash slate gist to engage in the discussion of what's a better cliche like I was speaking of before. I had been keeping up a challenge that I called the flan plan. 
Each day, I would eschew flan, flan-based desserts, or any flan byproduct. Instead, I would dine on a custard made of milk, eggs, and vanilla extract. I was then made aware that I had a poor working knowledge of flan, and that became my new challenge. But now, it's a Monday. That means it's a new They Might Be Giant song. Dial-a-song can be called at 844-387-6962. And today's song is right here, right now. It's They Might Be Giants drawing pistols to say, Madam, I challenge you to a duel. So twisted now, like all that sweet's gone sound. 